You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Let's continue to worship. Let's stay standing and continue to exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts as we pray together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence this morning, and that is not something that we take lightly. That's an awesome thing, that right now we can bow our hearts before you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we can hear together with one united voice proclaim your greatness, your power, your authority, your victory over sin and death and everything else that stands before us. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful this morning to be here, gathered under one roof, called by your name, called to a common purpose, a common vision, a common mission for the glory of one King and Savior, and that is you, Jesus. Lord, this morning we come rejoicing in the cross. We come delighting in the fact that you, out of your love for us, Lord, a love that we didn't deserve whatsoever at all, Lord, that you, out of your love for us, chose to set your glory aside, to humble yourself, to take on the form of a servant, and to ultimately lay your life down on the cross for our sins so that we could be washed, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be made whole, so that we could be forgiven and saved, and we come this morning delighting in you. Oh, Jesus, we pray that as we open your word this morning, Lord, would you set our hearts on you? Lord, would you ignite and kindle that fire that's burning within us, Lord? We came here, Lord, this morning to see you high and lifted up. Lord, exalt yourself. Show us your glory this morning, Lord. And may we leave here rejoicing in you, changed by your presence. Lord, lead us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat this morning. Well, as you guys know, I'm not Daryl. My name is Brett Patterson, and I am the uh, pastor of discipleship here at Harvest Niagara. For those of you that I don't know, uh, Daryl is away this weekend, not on vacation. Daryl is away uh, preaching at a church that he grew up in, uh, this church that he uh, was at when he was young, uh, still is young, right, but um, that he was at when he was very young, okay, that this church has now been in existence for 50 years. Now think about that for a second. Isn't that a remarkable thing? A church that remains faithful to the gospel in our culture today for 50 years. That's awesome, isn't it? May may that be our testimony, that we would not sway, not waver from the gospel for 50 years and more. And so I I just remind you of that. Pray for Daryl as his family travels this weekend. We're so thankful for him as our pastor. But this morning I have the opportunity to open God's word with you. And uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, Acts chapter 2, you can open up there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got ushers at the back that are just kind of chomping at the bit to get down and get one in your hand. So if you don't have a Bible, put up your hand nice and high, hold it up. We say this every week and it never gets old, but if you don't have a Bible at home, take that Bible. It's our gift to you. No, it's not stealing. It would be good for you to take it. And if you read it, you will be blessed. Take it as a gift. But this morning... Acts chapter 2, we are going to look at a very familiar passage to us. We're going to really actually just look at one verse primarily this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 
And if you've been around Harvest for a little while, you've heard this verse before. You've probably studied this verse. And you would probably also recognize that from this verse come four out of our five pillars. And we're going to see these things as we dig into this text this morning. But before we jump into it, I want to ask you one simple question. One simple, but I believe heart-searching question for each of us. Here's the question. What are you devoted to? What is it in this life that you would say, if you were put on the spot, that you are truly devoted to? Now, I know that many of us have the right answer, and we know the right answer, and that's Jesus, okay? Um, Right, okay? Don't just say the right answer for the sake of saying the right answer. Look at your heart this morning. In your heart, what are you truly devoted to? Well, how do you even know that? What takes up your time? What do you spend your resources on? What consumes your thoughts when you have a moment alone? What are you devoted to? What are you all in for? What are you about this morning? Just think about that for a second. Maybe you're devoted to sports. Maybe you have been thinking for about three weeks now, man, we are getting close to the beginning of a hockey season, and I wonder if the Leafs are going to make it to the cup this year. Don't hold your breath. We can cheer, but don't hold that breath, okay? Who knows? We'll see, right? Um, maybe, maybe it's baseball. I don't know. I don't even know what's happening with baseball, so we'll forget that one, all right? Um, maybe it's some other hobby. Maybe it's some other thing that you do. Maybe it's some outlet. Um, maybe you are devoted to your family. Well, that's a good thing. Maybe you're devoted to your spouse. That's a really good thing, okay? We, we need to encourage that. Yes, be devoted to your spouse for sure, um, Maybe you're devoted to your profile, whether that's Facebook. Does anyone even still use Facebook today? Not, not too many people, right? Okay, a few. Um, Twitter, Instagram. Maybe you are devoted to your public perception, how people see you, what people think, and how many follows you get. What is it that you're truly, in your heart, devoted to this morning? The reason that I ask that question is because the answer to that question has a lot to do with our gathering together, because the things that we are individually devoted to will ultimately be the things that take over even when we come together. In this passage, we are going to see something very simple and very clear. In Acts 2.42, we are going to see that the early church was devoted to four things, Four things, which ultimately equal one thing and one thing alone. They were devoted to discipleship. They were devoted to the glory of Jesus Christ, him being exalted in their midst more than anything else. And so having said that, let's jump into the text. Let's read this verse. We're going to read it several times throughout the message. You know, you might even be able to memorize it by the time the message is over if you work hard on it. But let's read it together right now. Acts 2, verse 42 from the ESV. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I love how the ESV puts this, but I also like how the uh, New American Standard Bible puts this. Listen to what the New American Standard Bible says. It says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We, we kind of get this picture that it's not just this one time, hey, I'm devoted to this, I'm all in for like two weeks and then it tapers off. They are continually devoting themselves over and over again with a fresh zeal, a fresh energy, a renewed spirit. They are continually devoted to. Notice the four things that are right there. We wanna make this really clear this morning. We're gonna break them down. Four things in this passage that we see. Let's count them together. The first one, the apostles' teaching. 
Second, the fellowship, the fellowship of believers. Third, the breaking of bread, that's the worship of Jesus Christ. And fourth, to prayer. They were devoted to these four things. That's important for us. Now, some people will tell you that when you read this passage, they'll say, well, listen, that's not really prescriptive for the church today. That's not God telling us what we should do as the church today. That's simply descriptive of what they did back then. To that, I would say, hmm, hmm, I don't know. I don't know about that. I just don't buy that. I'm just going to be honest with you. Sure, it is descriptive, for sure, but I do believe that this is prescriptive, okay? Think about it for a second. Um, if you were really ambitious, and this weekend, even though we are, we're still technically September, October's coming, but we're technically September, if you were out there and you were putting up Christmas lights on your house, anybody do that this weekend? Anybody put up the Christmas lights? No, good for you. That's not allowed till, my rule is November 25th, my wife differs on that, but... Um, so it ends up maybe in October. We'll see, right? But, but listen, no Christmas lights yet, okay? But if you were up there and you were putting up the Christmas lights on your house and you were on the ladder and heaven forbid you fell off the ladder and you hurt your arm really badly and you went to the doctor or the eMERGE and you went in and you said, hey, listen, I was up on a ladder. I fell off. I hurt my arm really bad. I'm afraid it might be broken. How would you feel if a doctor, before even looking at you, before even glancing up, just said, yeah, that's not your problem. Uh, your problem is, is that you've got a virus and you need an antibiotic. Here you go. W would anyone accept that prescription? No, because the reason is you cannot have an accurate prescription without first an accurate description, right? So this is descriptive of the early church, but it's so much more than descriptive. It is God giving us the prescription for the church today. Hey, if you want to be a part of a healthy, vibrant church, if you want a healthy, vibrant church, commit, devote, go all in for these four things, which are really one thing. That is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, listen, church, these things are a description of the early church, but also these things are a prescription for us today. If we want to see God moving in our midst in awesome ways, we need to commit to these four things. We need to devote ourselves fully, 100% to these four things. As we get into this this morning, let me just kind of take a second to set up the context here for you in Acts chapter 2. You'll remember in Acts chapter 1, the early church was, they were gathered together and they were a little, little shy still and Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says what? It says that, that God said to them, the Lord said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Do you remember that verse? Awesome verse. If you don't remember that one, just kind of highlight that one in your Bible. That's a great verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. The church is empowered, okay? And then Peter, right out of that, Peter stands up and he begins to preach the gospel openly and publicly to the crowds of people that are gathered in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel and the most amazing thing happens. And right, just a verse before this, 3,000 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? We had a phone that went off in the first service too. I think that's just kind of the thing today, right? Okay, so let's just try that again. Okay, 3,000 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? Amen, okay, we got one amen. Someone might say, woo, all right, yes, woo, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
imagine, just imagine that in our church, okay? Just imagine, okay? The early church, there's about 120 people, roughly, okay? Then, overnight, one sermon, 3,000 more people added to their number. That's awesome, isn't it? Now, that's not just because Peter was a dynamic communicator. He may have been, okay? That's because God showed up in power and saved souls and drew people to Jesus Christ. That is awesome. Now, that's, don't get me wrong. I've said that's awesome like six times. I'm going to say it once more. That's awesome. But secondly, that's a discipleship crisis, isn't it? Think about it. 120 people. All of a sudden, there's 3,000 more. How are we going to disciple these people? How are we going to lead them? Where are we going to get the resources? How are we going to invest in these people and see Jesus Christ formed in them? So that's like a, oh, this is so great. Oh, Lord, I'm terrified moment for the church. What are we going to do? Just imagine that here in our context. Imagine Pastor Daryl stood up one morning and preached a message anointed by the Lord, and the Lord used it to save souls through live stream or whatever all around Niagara, and we came back here the next week, and our numbers had just increased like that. That would mean that we went from somewhere around 600 people to like 15,000 people in a week. That'd be awesome, but that'd be a, a little intimidating too, wouldn't it? Wow. How are we going to disciple all of these people? What are we going to do is the question. What are we going to do? Well, listen, the church didn't plug people into a discipleship program. They didn't call in some big name speaker to come in and disciple these people and preach a few messages for them. Here's what the early church did. We're told right in the text, right here, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to these things, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what they did. That's how they discipled. That's how the church grew. And I'm going to say today, that's how the church grows today. The church doesn't grow by mass marketing. The church doesn't grow by new strategies and programs and those sort of things. They have their place, but that is not how the church grows. The church grows when the power of the Lord comes down upon that church and people are gripped with the greatness, the glory, and stand in awe of Jesus Christ, and when they commit themselves fully to Christ and pour out their lives for the gospel by devoting themselves to the four things in front of us. And so this morning, that's the context of our message the church grew by keeping the main thing the main thing. The church grew in its early days by these disciples doing exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do in the Great Commission. Now, before we get kind of a romantic notion of the early church in our minds, we need to just remember that the early church definitely wasn't perfect. Okay? Can we all agree on that? Okay? The early church definitely wasn't perfect. It had its fair share of problems. If you're not sure about that, just read the Bible. Okay? Just read the New Testament. You're going to read it right there. Go over a couple chapters to Acts chapter 5, and right away you see Ananias and Sapphira and their sin of lying against the Holy Spirit and the judgment that fell on them. If you need more evidence than that, that the church wasn't perfect, then go over to the book of 1 Corinthians and look at the stuff that they were dealing with and was going on in the church there. Don't think that the early church was so perfect. It would just be amazing if we could all just get back there and be just like them and we could all just sit in a holy huddle and sing Kumbaya every day. Don't think that, okay? The early church had its problems. It had serious problems. It had false teaching. It had immorality. It had all kinds of problems. But the early church did also have some incredible strengths that are beautiful. And if we capture those, if we devote ourselves to these things, we will see God move in power among us.
And so this morning, let's just unpack these. Let's just walk through the text, these four things, and look at what the early church really committed themselves to. Let's look at what they were devoted to. First of all, let's just start with that word devoted. It says that they were devoted to. Being devoted to something, first of all, means that your heart is in it. Now, it's not just that they devoted them to, as I mentioned, at one point in time and then kind of ran off the momentum of that for a while. The text is better translated if we would maybe say they were continually devoting themselves to. Over and over again, they were recommitting to these things. This is what's truly important. This is what I need. This is where we need to go. They were over and over again giving themselves to discipleship within the context of the community of their own local church. Do we get that this morning? Do we get this morning that we are just not a bunch of random people gathered here for a random service, but that we are actually a family of believers gathered here? For those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are a family of believers that are gathered here in this moment under God, united together for His glory and a specific purpose. The early church got that, they understood that, and they were perseveringly devoted to the four things that are before us. They were earnest towards these things. They were constant. They were diligent. Or maybe we could say it this way. They clung closely to them. They hung on to them dearly. This morning, it's easy for us to say a lot of things about being devoted to one another and being devoted to Christ. It's easy for us to say that. It's easy for us to hear about that. But let's ask the question, are we? Are we truly devoted to these things? Are we truly devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are we truly devoted to fellowship? Are we truly devoted to worshiping Christ and breaking bread? Are we truly devoted to prayer? Now I can just tell you, organizationally as a church, okay, overarchingly as a church, we are devoted to these things. As you'll see right over here on this banner, you're going to see four out of the five of these things are, are right here. There are pillars of our church. The other one, the unafraid witness, that happened in the verse before this when Peter stood up and preached the sermon, okay? We are committed to these things as a body of believers. But listen, a body of believers is made up of individuals, isn't it? So individually, Heart check, heart test, individually, are you, am I, fully devoted to these things? Are we? Now listen, this morning, I'm not trying to guilt you in any way into committing to the apostles' teaching and devoting yourself to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. I'm not trying to guilt you into any of those things. That doesn't work. That's a colossal fail. Trying to guilt somebody into doing the things that are commanded in Scripture is an absolute miss. That's like throwing some lipstick on a pig and entering it in a beauty pageant. It's just, it's not going to work, okay? Like, everybody's going to know it's a fake, all right? Um, That doesn't work. So I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. By God's grace, I'm trying to show you how awesome it could be, how good it could be if we truly committed to these things in our small groups, in our gathering together, if we were all on the same page to be fully devoted to these four things that are before us. Just keep that in mind. This morning, if you feel a bit of weight on your shoulders as you hear these things and you feel a little sense of, "Ah, that's not me guilting you this morning, 
Maybe that's the Holy Spirit pressing conviction. And when the Holy Spirit presses conviction, that's a good thing because he's calling you from where you're at right now in this moment. He's calling me from where I'm at right now in this moment and he's calling you to somewhere better, okay? So if you feel a bit of weight this morning, don't, don't think it's because some guy stood up at the front and tried to condemn you this morning, but know that the Holy Spirit is calling you to himself this morning. He's giving an opportunity for you to start in a fresh way, to start new, and to really pour out your life and be devoted to the things that he's called you to. So let's jump into them. Let's jump into them one at a time right now. First of all, the early church, they were devoted to the word of God. It says right in our text that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word of God, we could say. They were devoted to the New Testament. Now, first of all, when, when the early church was in its formation, they didn't just have a Bible that they could pick up like this. They didn't have a Bible. They had the apostles with them. So you couldn't receive the apostles' teaching as we can today just in, in the comfort of your own home unless one of the apostles was there or somebody else was there to share that with you. Do we understand that, okay? You couldn't just go on YouTube and hear a sermon that tells you what it says in the book of Colossians. That's not available. You couldn't just read the book of Colossians at that time or one of the Gospels. It was actually that the people followed the apostles and the apostles taught them. And they multiplied ministry. They gave their ministry to other people to teach others and disciple others. Now just notice one thing here right off the bat. First of all, immediately in this text, we're already talking about community, aren't we? When people would hear the word of God in the early church, they would hear it in community. They would hear it with at least another person speaking that word of God to them. Do we get that? You know, today we, grow, we live in a culture that is very much a Jesus and me culture. What do I need community for? What do I need people around me for? I can read my Bible on my own. I can have a great thing going on with Jesus just by myself. Wrong. Wrong. Because when we read this passage, notice the very first word in this passage, second word, sorry, and they collectively devoted themselves together to these things. The apostles' teaching. It happened in the context of community. Well, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, let's start first of all with what it's not. Okay, the apostles' teaching today is not simply that you hear somebody with a big smiley face who stands up on TV and speaks a persuasive message. That doesn't mean that's the apostles' teaching. That doesn't mean that that message is in line with sound doctrine, does it? Not at all. The apostles' teaching is not just because you heard some passionate speaker on the radio and possibly even somebody on the radio who quotes a lot of scripture, but as you listen to this person talk about scripture, you're like, I'm not sure that's what that verse means. I'm not sure that's what that verse means, but you're going so fast that my head's just in a fog. Has anyone ever heard someone like that on Christian radio? One other person. Okay, there's two. Good. Okay. In the first service, there was no one. They don't listen to radio at all, apparently. You guys do. So, okay. So watch out. Just because you hear someone persuasive doesn't mean that it's the apostles' teaching or doctrine and in accordance with sound doctrine. Everything must come back to the word of God. We get that. We've heard that several times before. Let me just reinforce that for you right now. Acts chapter 17. 
Uh, Paul and his brothers that are with him were just in Thessalonica, and they leave Thessalonica, persecution and everything. They leave there, and they go on to uh, the place of Berea. And as they're there in this place of Berea, they proclaim the gospel, and it says this. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, notice this, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The word of God says that the Berean people were more noble than the people of Thessalonica because they searched the Bible, they searched the scriptures to see if the message they were hearing was actually true or not. Listen, Christian, that's on each one of us. When I hear a message, when you hear a message, when you hear someone talk, anyone talk, even from a pulpit, it's your mandate, it is your mission to check that against the Word of God. Do you understand that? That means that each one of us has a responsibility to know where to find sound teaching in Scripture. That's important. That's very important. Because if we don't do that, we will be swayed. We will be carried away to and fro by every wind of doctrine and false teaching. So we need to be careful of that. See, the apostles' teaching is not just because somebody says it with authority, but it's what comes from the word of God. Well, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? That's really important to know. Do we have apostles around with us today? The answer on that is no. I I don't care what persuasive person you hear that might say, yes, we have real living apostles today. Listen, here's the criteria for an apostle from Scripture. First of all, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. They had to see Jesus after his resurrection. Second of all, they had to be commissioned or called to be an apostle by Christ himself. So you couldn't just sign up for the the job of apostle. You had to be commissioned and set apart by the Lord. And the apostles were the ones who were entrusted with the message of the gospel. The apostles' teaching, we can really break it down into two parts, real simple. First of all, the apostles' teaching is the gospel. We're going to break that down in just a second. And then second of all, we have the gospel first, and then second, we have Christian living. So we have the gospel message, and then the apostles' teaching involved Christian living, which is the implications of the gospel. The way that we live our lives every single day in this world is in relation to the gospel. It's the outworking of the gospel. And this came through the apostles. Now notice what 1 John verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says. Here's, here's a, a little passage from that scripture that says this. This is the apostle John writing this. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Get this. Notice how much he's saying, okay, we saw this, we looked on it, we were there, we were present, we even touched Jesus with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Listen, the apostles were eyewitnesses. 
They were eyewitnesses of the event of the gospel. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. They were the ones that were entrusted with the message of the gospel and to give authoritative instruction to the church. Where do we find the apostles' teaching today? We find the apostles' teaching contained in the New Testament of our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels and the epistles, okay? And the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. It's not open. We're not going to receive a new book. We're not going to get something else from an apostle. This is it. It's right here. And so when we hear that the early church held fast, when they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to the New Testament. We can say that with authority. That's the teaching that they received. It was the New Testament teaching, even though they didn't at that point have a copy of God's word in their hand. But listen, I mentioned just a minute ago that there were really two aspects to the apostles' teaching. One, there's the gospel. And then two, there's Christian living, the outworking of the gospel. Let's just take a second and let's just talk about the gospel. We can't rush through a message like this without actually taking a moment to talk about the glories of the gospel. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, maybe this is just a great moment for you just as I talk about these things, just to say, yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the mercy and grace that you've shown me. Maybe this is even a moment to pray for somebody in the room who's never heard the gospel before, that today would be the day that they would open their heart to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So let me just say this. The gospel, the gospel, really it starts out with bad news. It starts out with bad news, but then it goes to incredibly good news. So let's start with the bad news first. First of all, in the gospel and in the truth and the reality of who we are, each one of us in this room is a sinner before God. We are guilty before God. Now, that's not a popular statement today. Our world would say, we're all good. We just kind of mess up sometimes. That's vastly different than what God says about us. God sees the human heart with precision, with clarity. He sees us on the inside, and God says that we are, each one of us, myself included, is guilty before him because of my sin and you are guilty before him because of your sin if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're all sinners. That's the bad news of the gospel. But aren't you so glad that the gospel just doesn't end with bad news? Aren't you so glad that the gospel, the actual word gospel, means good news? That it's good news to us? Anybody ready to hear some good news? I'm ready to hear some good news. This is a great time to rejoice in your heart and let the gospel fire you up again if you know Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God looked down on us in our sinful state when we were waging warfare in rebellion against him. That's us apart from Christ. When we were there, God looked down on us in love. Think about that. God loved his enemies so much that even while they were at war against him, willingly willingly loved us. That's awesome. And not only did he look down on us in love, but in love, he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Now think about that for a second. That should blow our minds totally. Jesus Christ, the son of God, worthy of all praise, worthy of all glory, worthy of worship and only worship, willingly came into this sin-cursed world, willingly. The Father didn't force him. The Father willed, the Son willingly went. And Jesus came into this world, and now here, this should just blow all of our minds. 
And in this sin-cursed world, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He didn't sin one time. Not in any way. He was absolutely sinless. We just sung about that a few moments ago when we sang about the Lamb of God. That's Jesus. He's the perfectly spotless Lamb of God. He's the one that is without sin, without blemish, without stain, didn't ever sin in any way. That is good news for you and me because because of Jesus' perfection, that made him suitable to be our sacrifice. And then Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross for us. He willingly went And he suffered all of the ridicule. He suffered all of the pain and the excruciating torture of the cross in our place. Listen, because of our sin condition, each one of us was guilty before God. That is what we should have endured. But Jesus endured it in our place. Now here's the amazing reality about the gospel. When Jesus died on that cross and he was there purchasing our redemption and our freedom paying the debt of our sins, God's wrath being poured out upon him. That's what happened on the cross. When that was happening, something amazing happened. In that moment, we call this the great exchange. In that moment, our sinfulness was put on Jesus, on the cross, and then through faith, his righteousness is put onto us. How awesome is that? Think about that for a second. Put your hand up nice and high if you deserve that. I'm sticking mine in my pocket because I don't deserve that. I deserve to suffer for my sins. That's what I deserve. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ dies in my place. He takes all of my sinfulness upon him. In in Peter, uh, 1 Peter, I believe, might be 2.24. The reference isn't coming to me right now. Okay, you can look it up. But it says that he bore our sins on him on the tree. Jesus bore our sins on the tree. Our sins were put on Jesus, and then the beauty of the gospel is that through faith, his righteousness, his goodness is put upon us, and we stand before God when we've received him as our Lord and Savior, washed, redeemed, forgiven, a child of the living God. How awesome is that? Wow. But we're not done yet, because that's only part of the gospel. It's not the full gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just end with the moment that you are saved. The gospel really begins for you at the moment that you're saved and then extends on and on into eternity. And here's the reality. When we talk about the gospel that the apostles preached and the Christian living that they instructed, those things aren't two separate things. They're one thing. Christian living flows out of the gospel. When we are saved by Jesus Christ, God goes to work to radically change and transform our lives. Praise God. Praise God for that. Here's the awesome reality of the gospel. God doesn't save you to leave you stuck. He saves you to change you and to grow you into the image of Christ. God's goal in your life and my life is to see Jesus Christ formed in us. How great is that? It's to make us like Christ. Now that's not fully gonna happen in this world. Okay, sanctification, that's a big word for that change process. Sanctification is only partial in this world, but for a believer is guaranteed to be completed one day, isn't it? That's called glorification. When Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, returns, every single person who has repented of their sin, put their faith in him, every single person at that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, will be changed to be like Jesus. That's awesome. Wow. And we'll dwell with him in glory forever. Wow. Isn't the gospel awesome? 
Doesn't that motivate you? Doesn't that stir you to live for the glory of Jesus right now? Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've never received the gospel, the invitation's wide open today. The cross stands up here at the front to remind us that Jesus is inviting you to come to himself today, to repent of your sin, to turn your back on it, to put your faith and trust in him, to receive him as Lord and Savior. And maybe you sit there in your seat and you say, well, that's great for these church people, but I've just, I've done too much. I've been too bad. I've, I'm just not good enough for Jesus. But you know what? If you feel not good enough for Jesus today, if you feel that you're too bad for the gospel, guess what? You are just in the right place because if you feel that way, then that only qualifies you to receive mercy and grace from a savior. Listen, the reality is that we're all that bad, that not one of us deserves the gospel, that it is impossible for us to be too bad for Jesus' grace to cover us, and that you can come to Jesus Christ, and you can put your faith and trust in him and turn away from your sin, and you can be saved this day and walk out of here with the assurance of God in your heart, knowing that you have an eternity for him, and then you can go on to live this life devoted to the things that really matter. And so I'm just going to say right now, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, talk to someone after the service. Maybe talk to one of our leaders that's up at the front. Maybe talk to the person that invited you. But don't leave that. We also know that Jesus Christ is coming again soon. It could be any time. It could be today. And when he returns, there'll be no second chances. There's only one chance today. The Bible says today if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart against him today. Turn in faith and receive the Lord. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, then the gospel is precious to you. And if the gospel is precious to you, then that is beginning to affect the way that you live every single day. And the apostles' teaching is really made up of two things. It's made up of gospel and gospel implications. Christian living, we might call that. Now, we could get into a big talk on Christian living, and that could be three years sermon series, okay? There's lots of material there. If, if you need more on Christian living, dive into the New Testament. But listen, let me just leave this with you. When you receive the gospel as a believer, it begins to change you. It begins to change your life from the inside out. Maybe not as quickly as you want it to. Maybe not in all the ways that you want it to immediately. The Lord knows that at times I'm like, Lord, why are you just not changing me quicker in this? Come on, come on, come on. I feel like that too, but it does change you. It does change your life. It gives you a heart that longs to follow Jesus Christ. And we must stick to the apostles' teaching. We must stick to it firmly. The church that is rooted on the word of God is the church that will thrive and the church that will flourish. The church that departs from the word of God is the church that will eventually no longer exist and will not go on for the glory of Jesus. I love the way that John MacArthur summarized this point. I know we've spent a fair bit of time on this. We've got to get this, okay? He said it this way. The foundational content for the believer's spiritual growth in maturity is, or and maturity, was the scriptures. God revealed truth which the apostles received and taught faithfully. There it is. You want to grow in Jesus Christ? It's the word of God. Get under the word of God every opportunity that you get. Get here, get under it on Sundays, open your Bible through the week, meet with other believers in your small group, get under the word of God, and you will grow in grace. But listen, that's not all in this text. That's not all. There's so much more. Here's the second thing right here. They were devoted, they were devoted, the early church was devoted 
to genuine fellowship. Listen, as a church, we are devoted to genuine fellowship. We've got to get that. We've got to believe this. We've got to be committed to this. Organizationally, yes, we are devoted to genuine fellowship. But are we individually devoted to genuine fellowship? And I just want to be honest with you right now. The word fellowship has really been hijacked in North America over the last, well, more than a few years, several decades, okay? The word's lost a lot of its meaning. Today, when you talk to most Christians about fellowship, they associate with fellowship uh, cookies and donuts and coffee and sunny delight, just that you'd get at the table out there or whatever. Or they associate uh, football and nachos or hockey and nachos, okay? They associate those things. Now, listen, those things can aid in fellowship to a certain degree. I, I think that chicken wings at a men's event are a great asset in assisting in fellowship. Who would agree? I hope so, okay? Okay. But listen, just because you bring a bunch of men together into a room and you give them chicken wings and you talk to them about Jesus, does that mean that you're going to have fellowship together? No, it doesn't. Fellowship is so much more than that. Listen, the Greek word for fellowship here is the word koinonia. You've probably heard that before. Koinonia is really a unique word and it means to have in common. These believers, they had something in common, something more than just the fact that they all came from the same area. They had something greater than that in common, okay? Koinonia really means to participate in, it means to share in, it means partnership, and it means to have in common. Now, what did these early believers in the church have in common? Jesus Christ. They had Jesus Christ in common. He was their fellowship. He was the one that connected them all together. Listen, church, the reason that we have fellowship today with one another is because we are connected underneath the headship and authority of Jesus Christ. Everybody take their hands and make a little triangle in front of you like this, okay? This is, this is helpful, especially for the kids in the room, okay? okay? Uh, at, at the top right here, this is Jesus, okay? Jesus is at the top of the triangle, okay? And underneath the top of the triangle, all of us in here are enclosed, okay, inside that triangle, and we have fellowship with one another. We are connected with one another, okay, some of you aren't doing it, come on, come on, <laughs> and we have fellowship because of the headship and the authority of Jesus Christ, because in Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We are united. Do you get that? Well, you're like, well, I don't really like this person. Too bad. Too bad. You're stuck with them. I didn't always like my sister when I was growing up. Actually, it's not Christian. There might have been moments where I was closer to hate my sister when I was growing up. Okay, Lord, forgive me. But I didn't always love her, but I do now. Listen, we, we may not always get along perfectly. That doesn't mean that we don't have fellowship. We need to work it out as a family. We need to have fellowship with one another. You're like, really, with that person? Yeah, really, with that person. And if you can't get on board with that now, you've got an eternity to figure it out, okay? So, you know, now's a good time to go to work on it. We have fellowship with one another because of the fellowship that we have with Christ. Listen to what it says in 1 John, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, 
so that you too may have fellowship with us, that's with the apostles, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Awesome. So John's writing these things so that they can have fellowship with The church can have fellowship with the apostles, and the apostles, they're all connected under God. We have fellowship with one another. Well, what does it mean to have fellowship? It means to have things in common. It's more than nachos, but would you please just spell it out for us? Okay, here it is. John Stott, he said it this way. He said this, the word fellowship was born on the day of Pentecost because Christian fellowship means common participation in God, which is what had drawn the early Christians together. Fellowship is the fact that we are connected in Jesus Christ and we share in common with one another our lives, our faith, our struggles, our everything. We invest in each other's lives. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. At times, we in love even rebuke one another. And that is true fellowship. So much more than cookies and coffee or nachos and hockey, isn't it? That's fellowship. And listen, the stronger that we grow in our vertical relationship with God, the stronger that we grow in fellowship as a church. Does it seem odd to you that the Holy Spirit would cause the writer of Acts, Luke, to record that they had four things in common, the apostles teaching fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You know, as I read this for the first time, I'm like, fellowship, really? It's that important? Yeah, it's that important. We need to be together in order to stand in community. Listen, there's a lot of texts that we could look at on fellowship. I'm just going to give you two right now. I'm just going to put them out there for you. If you want to write them down and look into them later, you can. The first one is our small groups theme verse. Listen, fellowship is one of the four things we're going after in small groups, isn't it? Apostles teaching, fellowship, okay, worshiping Christ, and prayer. Those are the main things we're after in small group. Those are the main things that we're after here in the church. Two texts. First one. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. That's our small group theme verse. Great verse. Read it to you quickly. It says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Awesome verse on fellowship. The other verse, the second of the two twin texts, is Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's where fellowship comes in. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. True fellowship involves us sharing together, sharing our lives together, sharing ourselves, our struggles, our desires. It involves encouraging, exhorting, even rebuking, as I mentioned. It involves sharing with others what we have, and it involves supporting one another. And listen, church, I'm, I praise God that this is happening a bit among us, but listen, there's so much more opportunity for so much more of us, isn't there? You know, each of these four things that the early church was committed to, praise God that he's doing them among us. But man, there's room to grow, isn't there? I don't know about you, but I just, even as I'm up here preaching right now, I'm like, man, I'm thinking of spots in my own life where I need to grow in these things right now. And I believe the Lord's doing that in you also. Let's move to the third one before our time is gone. Number three, we're going to touch on this one quickly. Number three, the early church was devoted. We are devoted to remembering Christ's sacrifice. We're committed to that. When we come here on Sunday mornings, every single Sunday, whether we have communion or don't have communion, we come here on that morning to worship Jesus Christ and to exalt him. 
Listen, I hope that you don't just come on a Sunday morning to be entertained. You can find that in a lot better quality somewhere else, I'm sure, okay? The goal is not entertainment, okay? I hope you don't come on Sunday morning just to find one or two things that you can apply to your life and feel better about your, your moral walk. I hope that's not all. I hope that you come on a Sunday morning because you want to see the glory of Jesus Christ. You want to hear about him. You want your heart to be in tune with him. And you want to walk out of here rejoicing in the hope of your salvation. I hope that's why you come. I hope you come because you want to remember Christ. You want to remember his sacrifice and the fact that the tomb is not empty or that the tomb is empty and that the tomb is not full, that he is risen and he is alive today. I hope that's why you come. But listen, the early church met together and they broke bread. Now, early on in the, in the meeting of the early church, it seems that, and this is a little bit speculation, we have some record of it, but we're not sure how it all came together. So it is what it is. I'm not saying this authoritatively here. It seems that the early church, that they, when they met together for worshiping Christ, that they often had a full meal with that. And then they would break bread after and remember the death of Jesus Christ. Now, it seems as we read the New Testament that that kind of tapered off right after 1 Corinthians 11 happened. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, you will read that in Corinth, there was many people that were abusing the Lord's Supper and that it totally missed the point and they were actually sinning against one another. It seems that there's kind of a dividing line right there where that whole uh, feast together kind of ended and that it actually became more of a service where they would come in together, they would worship Christ, hear from the word of God, and then also at times, sometimes more often than not, break bread together. That's what we can see from church history. Now listen, we don't have communion every single week. The Bible never tells us anywhere that we have to have communion every single week. But let me just encourage you. When we do, we normally have communion at least once a month. When we do, let me encourage you not to come into that service, lighthearted. Don't enter into it fickly. Come in and truly worship Christ from your heart. When we don't have communion on a given week, the goal is still the same. We want to worship Christ and we want to see him exalted in our midst. Come with that heart and encourage others to do so also. Listen, we could say a lot more about this uh, passage and about this little phrase devoted to the breaking of bread, but we've, we've had whole messages on this before. If you want to study this a little bit more in depth, you can look at Matthew chapter 26 or another good place is to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and you can dig into what the Lord's Supper is. But right now we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the fourth point. The fourth point. The fourth strand of the cord that binds the church together is this. It's the fourth vital sign that we are after this morning of a living, thriving church. Number four, we are devoted to praying together. Notice that. Notice what that says. We are devoted to praying together. Notice that it doesn't just say that we are devoted to prayer. We are devoted to prayer. Absolutely. It's one of our pillars. We believe firmly in the power of prayer. Okay? Unceasing prayer. But in this context, for this point, the early church was devoted to praying together. I want you just to look at this for a second with me. It's easy for us to come through this and say, okay, they were devoted to prayer and miss the fact that this verse is pressing the importance of corporate prayer, of prayer together. Now, this is kind of where it gets a little risky for some of us in the room, doesn't it? <sighs> oh, man, he's going to try to get me to go to corporate prayer. Yes, I am. And I'm not ashamed of it. Okay? Why? Because the Word of God says it's good for us. 
because it's how we learn, how we grow, how we're encouraged, and how we encourage others. The reason I say that this is primarily about corporate prayer, let's just start at the beginning. Look at it with me. And, what's the second word? They. Okay, one person. Anybody else? Okay, and what's the second word? They. Devoted. Next word? Themselves. Corporate. It's talking about a group of people. Okay, it's talking about them coming together. Now listen, I don't care what our culture says, it's very hard to be a they when there's only one of you. Okay? You can't. This is referring to a group of people. It's referring to a group of people coming together and they're learning from the apostles together. Remember we said that the apostles had to be present to teach them the word or somebody to teach them the word. Fellowship. Hey, who has great fellowship with themselves? Anyone here? Because after the service, we'll have elders to pray with you, but we'll also have a doctor to see you, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. No, you can't have fellowship with yourself. This whole passage is in the context of community, okay? The breaking of bread. Man, it was so awesome celebrating the Lord's Supper by myself. No, it's community. So why would we ever jump to the end and say, oh, it's just talking about personal prayer? We would only do that because we want to sidestep the Word of God, and we want to try to plead ignorance on something that God has said is important. God is saying to us this morning, church, that corporate prayer is important. God is saying to us this morning, church, that praying together is a massive part of your life as a disciple in Jesus Christ. Now, let's just lay something down, first of all, real quick here. First of all, the most important thing about prayer is that when we pray, we are talking to God Almighty, aren't we? Second of all, the most important thing about prayer is that when we pray, we are showing our absolute and utter dependence on Him, aren't we? Third, when we pray together as a community, we are encouraging, we are exhorting, we are building up, and we are holding one another accountable, aren't we? Do you notice what's happening right there in prayer? Fellowship. Fellowship happens when we pray. Have you ever noticed that? When you've prayed with someone on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, doesn't your heart feel knit together with that person? Afterwards, you're like, man, I just made a new best friend tonight. I loved it. That was awesome. Yes. Why? Because corporate prayer, prayer together is important. It's not just important to the church, it's important to God. He loves it when his children seek his face together. So private prayer, yes, absolutely. Pray your face off every day. Corporate prayer, come together with people and pray together. Listen, the early church got this. Corporate prayer happened in homes. It happened in the temple. They were together. They were praying together. We read many examples in the book of Acts of corporate prayer. Did you know that there are only four possible examples in the book of Acts of private prayer? And there are over a dozen examples in the book of Acts of corporate prayer. Huh. I wonder if God's trying to tell us something. I think so. I think he's trying to tell us that corporate prayer, prayer together is important. Have you ever noticed that in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, or Luke chapter, I believe it's 11, have you ever noticed that the Lord's Prayer is not written in the singular? It's not my Father who art in heaven. It is our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's really hard to pray it in the singular sense, isn't it? Why? Because, well, my conviction is that the Lord's Prayer was given to be prayed in community, together. God wants His church to be a praying church that prays together. You've heard it said before, I'm sure the church that prays together is the church that stays together. That's cliche, but it's true. It's so true. And church, listen, listen, 
I believe that God has great days ahead of us if we will commit to these four things and if we will commit to all of them and if we will really go out in faith and step out in faith and commit to praying together, I believe that we will see God show up and do awesome things among us, things that we'll just scratch our heads out of. How did that even happen? I believe that will happen. Just to reinforce this point, let me just share with you because I know some of you are like, ugh, that's terrifying. Okay, it is kind of terrifying, okay? Most likely, most of us have kind of grown up thinking that when you get really good at personal prayer, then you move on to corporate prayer. Hand up if you've ever thought that before. Listen, a couple hands went up, okay? Thank you for your honesty and yours, okay? I'm gonna test you again. It's not good to lie in church, okay? And I know none of you are lying. Of course you wouldn't. You're way too wonderful of people for that, obviously. <laughs> Don't lie this morning. We can be honest together, can't we? Okay? I'm not putting up my hand as demonstration. I'm putting up my hand as actual reality. I have thought this before. If you have ever thought, I'm not going to be involved in corporate prayer until I get really good at private prayer, or I can't do that until I first do this, and I got to be nailing private prayer first before I can go and pray with these other people. Put your hand up if you've ever thought that. Just keep it up for a second. That's most of us. Okay, most of us have thought that. Just, you can put your hand down now. Can I just tell you, I've thought that too. That is absolutely 100% upside down on its face backwards. That is not how the early church thought about prayer. The early church did not think we're going to make disciples and we're going to give them a prayer schedule to pray in their own homes and when they get really good at it, then they can join us. The early church immediately went out, grabbed these 3,000 people and said, come with us, we're having a prayer meeting, we're all going to pray together. And they learned to pray in community. Listen, church, we learned to pray in community. So I just want to extend this to you. We have corporate prayer that happens all over this church every single week, every single week, all over. We have a prayer meeting before the service starts. We have a prayer meeting during the service, both services right now. Our kids' ministry prays, our small groups pray during the week. And the last Wednesday of pretty much every single month, we have a dedicated night of corporate prayer, of prayer together. That's intimidating. That's scary for some of us. I get that, Okay. I'm extending an invitation to you to come to that because the church that gets on their face and gets low before God is a church that grows, the church that thrives, the church that flourishes. Do we believe that? Yes. The church that prays together not only stays together, but goes on for the glory of God together. And so listen, there's a whole lot of holdups on us coming to something like that. They might give me a microphone and stick me at the front and make me pray in front of everyone. That's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. If all you want to do on the first week you come is stand in the back and not pray with anyone, just pray in your own heart, awesome. And as you come and as you hear others praying and as you're gripped by the, by the glory of Jesus Christ, as your heart begins to get transformed, all of a sudden you're just going to blurt out one thing and you're going to be like, whew, that wasn't so bad at all. Man, I kind of like this. This is great. You know, I'd like to tell you about my first experience at a prayer meeting here at Harvest. I remember Pastor Daryl standing up on a Sunday morning announcing prayer and praise and saying, if you've never been there, you need to be there because you wouldn't believe what God does in these meetings. And I was like, I'm intrigued. I want to go. And I showed up and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe that people just pray this openly and honestly together and they're this real together. But listen, I get that we're fearful of these things. I understand that. Fear, you wouldn't want fear to hold you back. 
to stand before the Lord in glory and said, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really pray with my church because I was too afraid. Man, we'd all be ashamed of that, wouldn't we? I remember when I was just in Bible college, I remember when I was in my second year, they told me that, um, that I was going to have to preach a series of sermons in front of the other guys in the class. We had a, this class, it was a homiletics class, and when they said that, I was like, can I quit now? And I was about two months in at that point and realized I probably can't quit. It's probably not good to do right now. And, uh, but I remembered my childhood. When I was a kid in elementary school, um, if there was something that I had to stand up in front of the class and read something or say something, I'd fake sick that day. And if they reassigned it on another day, I'd fake sick that day too. And if I wasn't sure what day it was going to be that week, I might just fake sick the whole week, okay, just to make sure I wouldn't have to do that. And the same thing in high school, I was terrified, terrified. I mean, like, shaking, terrified, okay? And you're like, what? Give me a break. No, for real, okay? Ask my family if you want to. Um, I was terrified of it. And when I got to Bible college and they told me in my second year that I was going to have to do this, I really thought about quitting. And then the teacher, the prof, said this amazing thing. He said, and if you're sick on the day, like he's reading my heart, if you're sick on the day when you're supposed to preach, we'll just assign you another day. And I'm like, okay, I can be sick that day too. And in my, in my heart, and then he said, and if you're sick that day, we've got the whole year. You're going to do this. <sighs> I'm like, there's no other option. I guess it's a good time to start praying then. And so first time I was up there, I stood up in front of all the guys in my class, and there was about 15 of them or so. And I'm standing there with a music stand just like this, and I've got my sermon manuscript and my Bible open, and they've got my manuscript in there. And they're critiquing me. That's what they're supposed to do. Way to take off the edge, right? Okay? And I'm standing there, and this stand's just going like this. It's just bouncing on the floor. But you know what? At the end of the morning, the Lord got me through it. He got me through it. I prayed. He got me through it. And I walked out of there, still terrified, saying, I guess that wasn't so bad after all. And guess what? I walked out of there afterwards with my faith in Christ for the fact that he got me through one of my biggest fears and that he used that to encourage a heart with that in my heart saying, God, if you can do this, you can do anything in my life. Listen, church, that's the way it is with prayer too. Some of you are just terrified to pray with someone else. Don't let fear stand in your way of that. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to be devoted to these things. He will give you the grace. He will give you the faith to do it. Look down with me right now and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens when we devote ourselves to these things. Verse 43, just the beginning words. And awe came upon every soul. Church, listen. When we devote ourselves to these four things, when we devote to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the worship of Jesus Christ, and when we devote to prayer, the glory of God will come down among us. He will make his presence known, and awe will come upon every soul. If you want more of that in your life, if you want more of that in this church, then there's no other option but to commit. That's it to ask God for the grace to help you devote yourself to these things fully and then stand back and watch what he will do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is so clear for us, Lord. We thank you that you didn't write this passage and this text in a way that we could just skirt around, Lord. You wrote this specifically for us today and as much as this was true for the early church, it's true for us today. Oh God, would you give us the grace to live these things out? 
Lord, would you help us to stand firmly on your teaching, your word, Lord? Lord, would you help us to be committed to genuine fellowship with one another, Lord? Help us to be committed to worshiping and exalting Jesus Christ. Help us, O God, to truly be committed to praying together. Lord, lead us in these things. And Lord, may we stand back and see your glory on display. We pray these things in your name. Amen.